just want to remind you of the bulletin that's passed out every week. There's a lot of information in here, so check things out, what's going on. And um, so also, if you don't have a Bible, we're going we're to be in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. So let's ask God to guide us. Father, guide us in your word today, Lord, to teach us more about who you are and who we are and your purpose for us. So thank you for this privilege today. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. When you go to seminary, they teach you preaching classes. And in the preaching class, there's always this thing called the hook. And the hook is the first thing you say to hook people in, to try and get their attention. And, um, and so today, I'm going to break every rule of that hook. And it's very ill-advised of me to do this, but I'm going to start today's sermon with grammar. Groans, I heard it. There's an expression that my pastor, when I lived in Portland, said one time, and I stuck in my head, because I love grammar. He said this, the fate of kings and nations is reduced to grammar when grammarians study them. I'm getting weird looks. You have to be a grammarian to understand what I just said. So obviously in communication, grammar is important. And I want to start off today to talk about the book of Colossians and where we are in a transitional place. At chapter 2, verse 16, we transition from telling us what is the truth about who Christ is to what we ought to do about it. So look at this slide I'm putting up there. And this is important. Don't, don't check out on me, okay? The indicative imperative paradigm. Now, isn't this cool and exciting? So the indicative is that these are verbs. Indicative verbs is a verb that tells you what is. An imperative verb is tells you what you should do. And Paul is famous for this in his letters. The first part of his letters, he tells you what is. Here's, here's the truth. This is what is true. Then he shifts to now here's what you ought to do about it. So let me give an example of indicative verbs that we've been using every sermon. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us, transferred us, and we have redemption. Those are indicative verbs. Those are saying this is what is. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, those things are true about you. We've talked about this time and time again, the importance of understanding the truth that because of the cross, God has delivered us from darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and put us in the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the, those are verbs that explain what is. Make sense? Now, what do we do about it? That's where the imperative comes in. Verbs that tell us now, here's how you live your life. This is the therefore section of the book. This is the now what do we do with this information section of the book. Or as I've titled this message today, this is the how now shall we live section of the book. In the first half of the book, we learned about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The second half tells us how we now live in light of these truths. When I talk about your deliverance and you've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son and you have redemption, those are theological concepts. But when we grasp them, 
put them into play, your whole world changes. How you live your life every day is different now. In the book of Colossians, before this verse in 2.16, we've only have two commands, two imperative verbs to tell us to do something. From here on out, we have dozens of them. The Christian life is filled with commands. And you see, if I could say this, I'll get into this in a minute. The Christian life is filled with do's. Do this, don't do that. But the Christian life can't be reduced to do this, don't do that. When you reduce the Christian life to its core principles, it is that last week's message, you were united with Christ when he died. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, and when he ascended to the right hand of God, you sit there with him right now. Those truths now, that's the core. In light of that, how do I still live in this world that is opposed to God and opposed to the gospel. That's what we're going to look at for the rest of the Colossians series. So functionally, this title, How Now Shall We Live, will actually be the sermon title for the rest. I may use different words, but that's what we're going to do for the rest. So, in light of that, last week's message on our union with Christ has delivered us from, from the penalty of sin and from the power of the devil. But we should expect that human arrogance and satanic schemes want to distort this beautiful truth. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrificial work is so important. What he did is sufficient to save you. But we sometimes in our cleverness, and obviously the devil himself, wants to distort it. And this section of Colossians is dealing with how now shall you live is going to bring up some negatives. This is how you don't live. And actually next week we'll see a combination of how you do live and don't live. And after that it's how you do live the rest of the book. So if that, does any of that make sense? Okay, give me the grammar again. Totally kidding. So I'm going to read to you. The first section is challenges to the sufficiency of Christ's work. We're going to look at three challenges today that Paul addresses for the Colossian church, I think apply to us today. But first I want to read you the passage. Colossians 2.16. Everyone turn there. Therefore, in light of Christ's sufficiency in his work that you've been delivered from the death and from the domain of Satan, last week's message, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or in regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If... With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in the promoting, appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
That last phrase is key to as we move through the rest of Colossians. That you as a redeemed person, born again, something's changed in you. God has given you a new heart. You have transferred kingdoms. You know, I've been talking about this for the whole, several months now. But you still have this thing called the flesh. The flesh is not referring to our body specifically. But in this body is something called the flesh, the principle of sin that still dwells in me. And we all know what this is when, when that temptation comes down the road at us that we've dealt with before, maybe given into many times. It's like, I don't want to do that, God. That does not honor you. That's not who I am anymore. And then what happens? Oh, God, forgive me. I did it again. That's the battle with the flesh. And what Paul's talking about here in these, in these challenges to the sufficiency of Christ, we want to solve our problems. And the, and the things we solve it with don't give you the power to live above the flesh. We'll go into that next week, what we, God has provided for us to live above the flesh. So with that, first challenge comes from Jewish legalism. Now, when I say Jewish legalism today in our world of, of hypersensitivity to racial issues, I'm not being anti-Semitic when I say this. Jewish legalism is God gave a law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, that was for the nation of Israel. Christ came and fulfilled that law, and it's very clear in the Bible, that law, the rules of that law don't pass on to the Gentile believer in Jesus. Christ fulfilled it. So, but there were Christians who would follow Paul, Christians who were Jewish that would follow Paul wherever he went and come in and say, hey, Paul's got it wrong. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the holidays. You need to keep the Sabbath. All the different things the Jewish followers of, of Yahweh had to do that Christ fulfilled, they're saying, no, you have to do them. So I'm not picking on Jewish people or their beliefs. What I'm picking on here is a belief that Christ did not deliver us from that. He did. He fulfilled it. Does that make sense? Because it's, you know, I have to say that in our hypersensitive world today. Let me read to you Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, that is the reality, belongs to Christ. So now here we have it. Multiple things that the Jewish person that followed the Jewish God, which is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had to follow many things. There were food laws, drink laws. There were festivals, new moons, and Sabbath. All these things that were daily, they, they lived their daily life in light of these. And now someone's coming behind Paul. Whoever this person is coming into Colossus is telling these Christians, oh, you got to keep these. you got to keep these. And so I want to start with, the, with the, um, the holidays. It talks here about festivals, new moons, and Sabbath. A festival is a yearly celebration in Israel. The Old Testament lists out seven of them. Let me read them to you. Seven festivals Israel um, celebrated every year. In the springtime was the Passover, then followed by the unleavened bread and, and culminated in first fruits. These are all festivals, feasts, parties. Then 50 days later was Pentecost. Those were in the spring. Then in the fall, you had the, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, or, or booths, where they lived in tents for a week to remember wandering in the wilderness. Those were the seven festivals that they had to keep. They had more that were developed over time. Purim, which came out of the book of Esther. Um, Hanukkah, which comes out of First Maccabees, which is a incredible thing that happens at Christmas time. We'll be, Hanukkah's coming up soon. It's an amazing, amazing historical celebration of God deliverance 
God delivers Israel from Greek rule. These have been fulfilled in Christ. Those are yearly celebrations. Then there's the new moon. Every 28 days, the Jewish calendar is a 28-day calendar. Where ours, ours is a, anywhere 28 to 31 days. They're different calendars. But every 28 days, the new moon, there was a festival, a feast. And last, the weekly one, the Sabbath. Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath. And so those Israel celebrated and kept. And to not keep them would be to dishonor God and to sin against him. Do we have to keep them today? As we're going to see here, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of these things pointed to Jesus. All of them. And it's a beautiful truth of the Old Testament. And I encourage you, um, several of you have told me you've been reading through the Bible again from Genesis to Revelation. A few of you got bogged down in Leviticus, and I understand that. Um, but if you read through it, if you choose to do this, read through it and, and have this filter, almost like put glasses on that are colored like Jesus. And look to how things point to Jesus constantly. On which one of these holidays did Jesus die? Passover. But that's not a coincidence. When John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, First Peter calls him the Passover Lamb. The holiday of Passover all points to Jesus. So then he sent the Spirit on what holiday? On Pentecost. And when you take communion today, what kind of bread are you taking? Unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All of these have symbolism that point to Jesus. And many people believe the ones in the fall all point to his second coming. The ones in the spring pointed to his first coming. I think there's validity there. So it's a beautiful truth. But here's the point. According to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, Christ did not come to abolish the law, not to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. So they are not designed for the new covenant believer to have to submit to those holidays in the food laws, which we'll talk about in a minute, because they've been fulfilled, which is a joyous truth. Christ is the reality. Does it make sense? Let's talk about food and drink laws. If you guys know anything about kosher eating, if you're a Jewish person or Jewish background or you know someone who's Jewish, very, very specific, elaborate rules about how you eat, how you cook, how you store food, all coming from the Old Testament. We get to Mark chapter 7 where Jesus, his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate grain. I think that, I think that was the context. And Jesus is rebuked by the religious leaders for not requiring his disciples because as though by not washing their hands, what they put in their mouth defiles them. And Jesus says, no, nothing you put in your mouth will defile you. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you, whatever kind of food you eat. It's what comes out of your body, i.e. your heart. What comes, what comes out of your mouth reflects your heart. He says, that's what defiles you. And we know this today. In fact, this is a sidebar. This isn't in my notes. They always say who you really are is what you act like when you're alone. 
So what comes out of your mouth sometimes when you get frustrated when you're alone? I don't, I don't want to take any further than that because I'll feel really bad then. I'm amazed what sometimes I say when I'm alone because it shows I still have an internal issue. I got to be to follow Jesus. Anyways, Christians are notorious for adding to Christ's work because we don't fully understand the ramifications of what we are doing. If his work is sufficient to save us, why do we add to things, add things to it? It's just something about humans. In some way, we want to... It's subconscious, I think, but is it really... Is Jesus' work on the cross really sufficient to save me? Maybe if I added this and added that, i become more pleasing to God. And then he'd really accept me. And so that can stem from insecurity and understand what Christ has done for you, or it stems from self-righteousness. Because I do way more than Anthony does. Maybe, maybe not. But what I do, what Anthony does, or what I don't do when Anthony doesn't do, is not our, what we're accepted before Christ as. That's not, the, that's not the reason Christ accepts us. Please hear me. I'm not saying there's not rules to follow. There's tons of commands in the New Testament how you live your life. But you live that way because of Christ's sufficient sacrifice, not to gain it. It's all the difference in the world. I've said this before from Ephesians 2. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Huge difference. So, so let me read to you Romans chapter 14. Someone, someone's come into the church at Colossus and forcing them to keep these rules. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. It's Jesus. But also, we'll do this to each other. People inside the body of Christ want to come up with rules for each other. So listen to Romans 14, 4 to 10. It'll be on the screen. Here Paul is dealing with the fact that sometimes our cultural differences and how we follow the Lord, in this case particularly Jewish people and Gentile people, now coming together in one body but have very different rules for life and how that causes trouble in the church. So Paul says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So let's back up. So let's say, so there's people who come to this church that aren't here this morning. Sinners. Um, are they? Are they sinning about not being here this morning? Any yays? Come on, someone help me out. What about drinking a beer? Shock. When I came here, one of the first things I was invited to was a group of leaders in this church that were all drinking scotch whiskey. I, I was a bit surprised. So I tried some. I still don't understand why you do that. Um, these are cultural customs that we now make, add a spiritual value to. To say you do or don't do them determines whether you're righteous. Listen to this. So who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So when someone has a different religious tradition than you on what day they go to church or whether they drink a beer or not or whatever, don't say, oh, you're going to go to, you know, hell or whatever. You're not, you're not a good follower of Jesus because of your practices. Paul says, don't pass judgment because God is able to make you stand. 
One person esteems one day as better than another, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, while another esteems esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is struggling with the Jewish believers who held to the Sabbath, Saturday, and the Christian believers who held to Sunday, which was the day of the resurrection, and there was tension in the body of Christ over it. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So the one who keeps the Sabbath, or Sunday morning at 10, thank you for being here, do it for the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. You see that up there? This is this alone, and there's many other passages, justifies and, and reminds us why do we say grace? Do you say grace before you eat? Why? Because it doesn't matter what you're eating, whether it's bacon or lamb. Which, you know, if you're a Jewish person, bacon is, you don't, you don't eat pork. It doesn't matter what you're eating. Are you grateful? And you know what the word grace means? Did you say grace? Grace comes from the word for gratitude. So when you say grace, you are giving thanks. And it's not just a ritual. As a kid, we had to say it before we could eat. The only religious training I had ever growing up was um, I had to say a prayer. Bless the Lord for these gifts we're about to receive from the body. Something gone, you know. I couldn't eat till I said that. Never taught us about Jesus or anything else. I just had to say that prayer. And um, so today, it's hard not to make it a ritual. But the point is, whatever you eat, and if you're, if you're next door neighbor or your brother in Christ or sister in Christ thinks you shouldn't eat those things, let's not judge each other. If you're grateful what God has given you, that's all that matters. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And that's a sober reminder. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10 says the same thing. This is not a judgment to heaven or hell if you're a believer, but this is a judgment of how we lived our life here on earth and how we treated one another. That we will give an account for it. So instead of monitoring each other's lives on things that that may be important to us, but God hasn't spoken of them, instead of me monitoring your life to see if you're as good as I am, let's quit judging each other and support each other. Why, why, are we, why do we judge so quickly? Think about it. Why do we go to judgment so quickly? Why don't we presume goodwill? You know, Frank, I'm going to pick on Frank again. He's so easy to pick on. He sits right there. If Frank does some things that, that, that I, I think he shouldn't be doing, why don't I just assume goodwill? Why don't I assume a good motive in Frank? But somehow I go to a bad motive. Well, Frank must be doing this because Frank has issues here, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's got daddy issues. No offense. So um, instead of saying, you know what? Frank may have done something I don't agree with, but I'm going to assume goodwill in Frank. He's trying to serve the Lord. He just disagrees with how I do things. Why don't we do that? That's the opposite of judgment, by the way. To not judge one another is to assume goodwill. Let's practice that. So what's the solution to this challenge from legalism? 
Remember, Christ is the reality behind the shadow. A shadow points to something. So, you know, I, I, I can't, I wish I had a, you can see my shadow back here maybe. That's not real. That, I'm the real thing. The shadow is simply what the light creates when it reflects off of me or when I block it. That's all the Old Testament laws. The shadow, the reality is Jesus Christ. So know the reality. And I mean by know, read your Bibles and have a relationship with Jesus. The next challenge comes from mystical experiences. Listen to Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 18, I'm going to put it back up there, please, Leslie, if you don't mind. Let no one disqualify you. I underline that because that's, that's a command to you. What does it mean, disqualify? So you're qualified to come into the kingdom of light because God qualified you. It says that in chapter 1 very specifically. He qualified you to the inheritance of the saints. You didn't qualify yourself. He did. But as soon as I start adding rules that someone else tells me, oh, Tony, you have to do X, Y, and Z, then you're acceptable to God. If I hold on to that, I disqualify myself in some way. Don't buy into that stuff. Don't let someone disqualify you from the grace of God. Insisting on asceticism, we'll talk about that in a minute. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Worship of angels, this is a, a again back to grammar, it can mean a couple different things. It could be that this person is worshiping angels. Or in the next phrase it says he goes on about visions he's had. He enters into the worship of angels. So the angels are worshiping God and he has visions where he's entered into those worship experiences. And, and when you have an ecstatic experience that no one else has, that makes you pretty special. So, so you can claim some kind of superiority. Oh, but I've actually had visions, have you? Or I can say you should have the same experiences I have in order to call yourself mature. Do you see how we're adding stuff there? First of all, religious experiences are precious. I'm not against experiences. But understand whatever experience the Lord gives you is not the basis of your walk with him. It's not the basis of your righteousness. And it's not the basis of which you compare yourself to somebody else. Because you didn't do it. God gave it to you for his purposes. So let's be very careful that we don't heighten our religious experiences and suggest we're better than each other or say, if you want to be close to Jesus, you should have these experiences too. That is destructive. That destroys people's faith when we put up things that are not commanded of God and say, you too should do that. We all want an experience that confirms that we are in the family. So today, the predominant philosophy is called naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that there's nothing outside of our physical world. And so there is no God per se. If he is, he has nothing to do with us. It's called deism. And so all we have is the physical world. Everything that happens, we can explain through physical sciences. Well, what, what do we do with religious experiences with that? So as Christians, we say, no, we don't believe that. 
We don't believe all there is is what the natural world can explain. We believe in a supernatural God. And so we yearn to have a connection to God to confirm to us that I do belong to him. And there's way more than this physical earth has to offer. We want these experiences. But when we fabricate them in our minds or put way too much weight upon them as the basis of our acceptance by God, then we have disqualified ourselves. Because why are you accepted by God? Let's see if you've been listening to the last eight weeks. Because of what Jesus did, 100% because of what he did, and the solution here is I'm holding on to Jesus. Look at verse 19. He's puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, these experiences, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nursed and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. It's Jesus alone that secures my salvation. And treasure your experiences with him. Those subjective experiences that you have some and this person has a different one or this person didn't have either one. Treasure them. Let's not make one the standard, say everyone has to match it. Or to say, because I've had it, clearly God favors me more than you. A good, a good, um, oh, something that can deflate your ego if you're, if you're egotistical in this area is Matthew chapter 7. It talks about false prophets there. And you'll know them by their fruit. And this, Jesus says, some will come to me on that day. Say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Not I knew you and don't now. You were never mine. So your experiences you've had weren't from me. You just think they were. So let's be very careful that it's Jesus we're holding on to and not our experiences. The third challenge comes from ascetical demands. This one I don't think we experience as much in, in our Western United States or Western world. Ascetical demands, let me read it to you and explain what asceticism is. If with Christ you died, and have you? A little better. If with Christ you died, you have died. So the if is not maybe, maybe not, it is since you died with Christ. To the elemental spirits of the world, that is the demonic realm, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are rules I put upon me to deprive myself of something that may be good, but I'll deprive myself of it. That's what asceticism is, ultimately. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." So what, what is asceticism? Asceticism is the idea of I'll deprive myself of something physically, my, my body, um, in order to make myself more godly or more acceptable to Jesus. And the opposite of asceticism, the de of depriving myself, is indulgence. 
So from a culture, which one do you think we have a problem with? I, I, I deprive myself or I indulge? Pretty good. Well, I appreciate you. Yeah, I think we're way have a, our problems really with indulgence, not asceticism, not with denial. I don't think we're very good at denial. Um, but but let me let me let me talk about this idea of adding rules to the game. If I'm accepted in the beloved, and clearly this body is not redeemed, this body's going to die, right? And all yours are too. And part of what's in this body in some way is called the principle of sin, the flesh, that which likes to sin, that which is driven by selfishness. Instead of saying, you know what, Christ is sufficient to deal with that, and we're going to end this sermon on showing his sufficiency, um, I'll add some rules to the game. We love to add rules, don't we? You know, when I met Teresa, I didn't know how to play pinnacle. She did. We eventually had some friends from California. Teresa's actually best friend in high school. And we started playing pinnacle together. Pinnacle has a ton of rules. Then we came up here and we met Greg and Linda Schaefer. And they like pinnacle. But they play a different version. Our friends from California, Jessica and Darren, play single deck pinnacle. Our friends up here, Greg and Linda, they play double deck Pinnacle. Any pinnacle players in the room? So the rest of you are like grammar. This is meaningless, right? <laughs> Play pinnacle's a blast. But then I get confused. The rules of one game over the rules of the other game. And here's my attitude. Rules are for people who don't know how to play. So I'll just make my own rules up. <laughs> has God given us rules how to live life? Absolutely has. So here's one of the rules. Don't steal your neighbor's car. Why? Because it's not yours. Thank you very much. But it's nicer than mine. And so, so, so there's a reason I don't steal my neighbor's car. is because that's a violation of my neighbor, of loving my neighbor. Spouses do not commit adultery. Why that rule? Everyone's quiet now. There's something about marriage, a man and woman coming together in marriage, and it reflects Christ's love for his church. And adultery not only destroys the marriage in humanity, among humans, it destroys the analogy of Christ's love for his church, the reason God created marriage. So there's rules for life, but they have a reason. But we'll add rules for no reason at all, or it's for self-righteousness, or adding to Christ's work. So, asceticism, what is it? Asceticism is things we do to deny ourselves. Minimal food, extreme fasting. By the way, fasting is biblical and is good. But the idea of extreme fasting, minimal food, basically starving yourself so you can gain some righteousness. Complete sexual abstinence. These are all in the church history. Complete sexual abstinence. That it is, it is, it is evil. Sin was created, sex was created after the fall, not before. Therefore, don't participate in it. That's a lie. Okay, don't, I don't believe that. Self-imposed poverty. You guys familiar with the um, Franciscan monks? St. Francis? I'm not trying to m- knock St. Francis per se. But what came out of St. Francis' teachings was, 
was, was, was called um, the medicant monks. The medicant means begging. They abandoned all earthly possessions, so much so they had nothing to feed themselves. So they had a bowl they walked around with in their, in their beggarly clothes, a bowl, and it was called a medicant bowl or a begging bowl, where they begged for food and begged for money. So they took this so far that they had to beg other people to give them money. That's what God calls us to do. But then they were seen as spiritual. That's asceticism. Sleep deprivation. Secluding oneself into the wilderness to go out and never see another person again. Wearing uncomfortable clothing. Martin Luther talked about this when he, he went to Rome and there's 28 steps that, that supposedly tradition says these steps were steps that Jesus walked on in Jerusalem and they imported them to Rome. And so Martin Luther crawled on his knees up them and kissed each step as a way to punish himself for his own sins and gets to the top and says, but did it work? Did it work? And that's what opened his eyes up ultimately to the gospel of grace. I do these to gain a heightened spirituality that actually has no power in fighting the indulgence of the flesh. So people who do these, and, and, and please, I, I won't go there. People who look to ascetic practices and abuse of the body, even extreme of it, some of it is you get a whip and you whip yourself to punish yourself. Yes. So, so, all these things seem to have wisdom in them. They seem to have some sense of, of religious power. But in the end, they don't. According to Paul here, they have no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Listen to 23 again, verse 23. There is indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So... What's the solution to this? And since most of us don't have a problem with this, what's our problem with? Indulgence, the opposite. What's the solution? Grow in your understanding that you died to this world and have been made alive in Christ. You don't have to do those things to be acceptable to God. Those are worldly principles to gain spiritual maturity that do not work. The opposite is not true. Therefore, party hardy. That's not true either. That's why self-control is in most of the lists of what spirituality, what godliness looks like. And we'll look at that more in the weeks ahead. I want us to take this idea in Paul and Colossians, because this sermon sets us up for the rest of, of the book in a great way. I want to take you on a survey. We just read in 2.20, if you have died to the elemental principles of the world, have you died? It changes your relationship to the world. So we don't live the way the world lives. If you have died, 2.20, look at 3.1 on the screen. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Have you died with Christ? Yes. Have you been raised with Christ? That is a fundamental shift in not only my position before God, but how I approach the world in my life on earth. Okay, if I'm, if I'm alive, what do I do with these urges I have, these desires to, to want to sin against God and fulfill selfishness? Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, and it goes on. So I, I, that's, a, that's a command. I have to make a decision. Those don't represent who I am anymore. That's not the, the resurrection life in Christ. That's who I was before I met Jesus. I'm going to put those to death. This is radical. We need to get radical about these things in our lives and quit playing around with them. We'll have a sermon on that. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, and it goes on. Put them all away. That verb there is the idea of taking your clothes off. Shed it. Take it off. And then it gets a few verses later in 3.12. Put on then, the verb to put on clothes. Put on then. And here's what I want to end the sermon on. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's you. Do you believe that? If you've died with Christ, you were buried with him, you were raised with him, and you ascend to the right hand of God, and you sit with him now in some true but mysterious way, if that's true, you are God's chosen ones, and you are holy, and you are loved by him. Do you fundamentally believe that is who you are? Or do you believe that you fall way short of that, and you have to earn it by legalism, by emphasizing experiences I've had, ecstatic religious experiences, or by mistreating my body, or being ignorant and indulging to the point of of gluttony and, and lust. Know who you are as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's where we're going in Colossians. In light of what Christ done for you, how now should you live? When we get to verse 12 of chapter 3, it's clear as a bell how we are to live. I can't wait to get there. So, legalistic religious rules, mystical experiences, and ascetical practices by treating our body harshly will not give you the power you need to live the resurrected life. They actually lead to self-righteousness. Solution, know that Jesus is the reality. Hold on to him. Treasure your experiences, but don't use your experience as the foundation of your faith. Jesus is the foundation of your faith. And understand your union with Christ, your death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension with Jesus results in I am a child of God, chosen, holy, and beloved. We're going to sing a song now. The worship team will come back up. And it's a gorgeous song. It's called Christ Be Magnified. And the idea here of your standing before the Father is 100% entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ. So our only response is to magnify him. Father, thank you for Colossians and what you've taught us here. Help us to think through our daily life. To what degree, Lord, are we giving in to the flesh? To what degree, Lord, are we allowing it to control us? And what is our, our tools we're fighting against it, God? And help, help us to grasp that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it starts with knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, depending upon Jesus. And that's the foundation, Father. We build from there. So teach us over the next several weeks from your word. And um, 
Thank you for the privilege right now of magnifying your son. In his name we pray, amen.